Father, you are gracious and compassionate. You, God, are the rock on which we build our lives. You told us in your word that when we hear these sayings of yours and we do them, that we would be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the wind blew and the storms came and the floods rose. And that house didn't move because it was built upon the solid rock of your word, of your truth. And so, Father, I thank you as we, we seek you in your word tonight, that we are, bit by bit, continuing to build on that foundation. And I pray as we do that you would help us just to rest in you tonight. We pray you be glorified in this time, that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we looked at chapter 7 and 8 last week, we saw the promise of the Messiah through David's line and David's continued military conquest. Uh, today, we're going to look at David's kindness to the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Thal. Thal. Good night, folks. The grandson of Thal. Wow. So Pastor Chuck used to tell a joke. I'm, it's over now, right? There's no more continuity. Pastor Chuck used to tell a joke about Thor riding his horse through the sky and proclaiming, I'm Thor. And his horse looked up at him and said, well, you should have used a thaddle, Philly. Thank you, Grayson. That's what I was hoping for right there. Genuine laughter. Not the eye roll. that My wife knew that before I even started. She knew where that was going. Oh, my. So today, I'm going to start that sentence over again. We're going to look at David's kindness to the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, a gentleman by the name of Mephibosheth. And then we'll, we'll get into chapter 10. Uh, where we'll see David, you know, killing more people. Because, you know, he does it pretty well. They were all bad. But we'll <laughs> I made my daughter giggle. That made me happy. Anybody get that reference besides my daughter? Yeah. They were all bad. It's going to be that kind of night, Cynthia. I'm already getting that face. She's like, oh, no. Oh, no. So there's a movie, True Lies, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Arnold. And uh, anyways, it's kind of an action comedy movie. And, and, and he's a spy, but his wife doesn't know it. And there's this part where he's been given a truth serum. And, and Jamie Lee Curtis looks at Arnold and goes, well, did you kill people? And he goes, yeah, but they were all bad. <laughs> See, go home, watch True Lies, great movie. All right, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. Now David said, Is there anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, 
So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel in Lodabar. King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emiel from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. And he said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? So David has a desire to show kindness to whoever is left of the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Remember, David made a covenant with both Saul and Jonathan to treat their descendants well once he became king. Uh, you can go back and look at 1 Samuel chapters 20, uh, 23, and 24 uh, as examples of where David made that covenant with both Jonathan and Saul. So a servant of Saul named Ziba, he, he's called and tells David that, yeah, there's this Mephibosheth is still around. And we, we were briefly introduced to Mephibosheth uh, back in 2 Samuel 4. If you remember, uh, when when we saw him, and, and again, it was like one verse in 2 Samuel 4, this Mephibosheth was mentioned that when uh, it was discovered that both Saul and Jonathan had died, that Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, mm, his name is mm, Mr. M there, uh, <laughs> it's a hard name if you say it once. It, it becomes downright annoying to everybody involved if I keep trying to repeat it. Uh, so uh, when they found out Saul and Jonathan had died, his nurse picked him up and ran. So he was much younger at the time. Um, and she fell. Now, there's disagreement, which I don't even know why I'm bringing it up because it doesn't matter. But there's disagreement about what made him lame. Did she fall while holding him? and like break both of his ankles or both of his legs and they didn't heal right, so now he was lame? Or when she fell, did she like drop him on his spine or on his head, causing him to be truly paralyzed? I don't know. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> but the point is, that happened. So David calls for Mephibosheth, has him brought from this guy, Makir's house. He falls down before David and says, um, he calls himself David's servant. Now, use your imagination just for a little bit, right? We'll put on our imagination cap. You're Mephibosheth. You are the last living male of the house of Saul. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. A person who was, at least from Saul's perspective, a sworn enemy. David is now king. And not only king over Hebron, which would have been scary enough, but now king over all Israel. He has conquered the Philistines and a number of other enemies who had come against Israel. And all of a sudden, this David wants to see you. 
Now, if I'm Mephibosheth, I'm going, oh, man. <laughs> what, you know, what, maybe, maybe this guy wants to kill me. Maybe he wants to make sure that none of Saul's line tries to rise up and take the throne back. Maybe he's angry with my grandfather for all the things he did. And now he wants vengeance. I mean, so he comes in and he falls down. He's like, I'm your servant. You know, he's, and what does David say? He says his name and he says, do not fear. And and, and I love, love that. Because David promises not only to show him kindness, but David expresses love for the sake of Jonathan and for the sake of the promise that he had made him. I mean, you have to understand, I have good friends and I have good friends who have children and I care about my good friend's children. Jonathan and David were very close. And here before him is, you know, I mean, he's Unky David. Unky David, come on, that's how it's, that's, that's the Hebrew. Prove me wrong. <laughs> All right, don't, because I'm definitely wrong, but still. Um, but right, if, if everything had gone well and Saul hadn't tried to kill David and and Saul and Jonathan hadn't died, I imagine David would have been a great presence in Mephibosheth's upbringing. So David would have looked at him with love and compassion. And so promises to show him kindness. He promises to restore all that was his grandfather's and all that was his father's. And not only that, he then tells him, and you're going to sit at my table and eat. Just, and of course, Mephibosheth looks at him and says, why would you look on me like that? I'm a dead dog, right? Mephibosheth had, I I want to really be careful about the way I say this, but in their culture, in his condition, he didn't have a whole lot of value, right? Because that's just the way their culture was. And so David takes him and goes, you know what? I I don't care. I'm going to make you wealthy, by giving you everything back that belonged to your family. And then you're not even going to need the wealth because you're going to stay with me and I'm going to take care of you. I mean, that's just... Pick, say Elon Musk showed up at your door and said, I'll tell you what, yeah, I've got, you know, I don't know, how, how much money does Elon Musk have? Can it, can it even be counted anymore? Yeah, all of it? Well, Jeff Bezos has some too, but you know. It's just, it's unfathomable to me, you know, I mean, people talk about billionaires, you know, Trump's worth is like three, four billion, and there's a few others, and, 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 and Elon Musk wanted Twitter, so he wrote a check for $50 billion and called it a day. I'm like, okay, and um, so imagine Elon shows up at your door and says, you know, I, I know I, I have 200 and however many billion dollars, I just don't need it, I'm going to give you $100 billion. Okay, pretty cool, thanks. He goes, but I don't ever want you to have to spend it. So I'm going to buy you a house and you get free Teslas for life. And I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that the house is stocked with food and Red Bull or whatever it is. I don't know. And that's what David just did for, for Mephibosheth. Now, two quick things. Okay, one's quick, the other's not. This guy, Mac here, is named here and... um. It's very possible that when the nurse ran with Mephibosheth, that she went to this man's house. And because at that point, Mephibosheth is now an orphan, that this man actually helped raise him. 
Now that's going to come back. Later on, when David is fleeing from Absalom, David ends up in the area of Lodabar, and Makir helps David in those fleeing with him. I mean, we could, we could take a lesson from that, right? David did not have to be kind to Mephibosheth. Yes, he made a promise, but so he's king. I made that promise when I was fleeing for my life. I'm not fleeing for my life anymore. I was under duress. It doesn't count. But no, he was kind to him. And I am sure Makir, who had raised this boy, heard about what David did for him. And later on, when David was in trouble, he returns the kindness. I love that. Now, this is also a beautiful picture of God's love for us in Christ. In Luke 19.10, Jesus told us that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here David sought the lost son of Jonathan. Mephibosheth didn't seek David. Right? He didn't, he didn't come after him. He didn't look for him. He didn't try to get close to him. He was about as far away as he could be. Once David found him, he restored to him all that he had lost and then gave him a place at the king's table. Now God does the exact same for us. Apart from Christ, we're lost. And the reality is, because the Bible tells us this is true, that there's no one who seeks after God, not one. So he has to seek us. Now, once we're saved, we can seek after God, but that's only because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. But apart from Christ, I don't know about you, but before I was confronted with the gospel, I wanted nothing to do with God. And he came after me anyway. And then Jesus restores us. He restores us to a right relationship with God. He can restore us, well, first and foremost, spiritually, and then emotionally, and many times uh, physically. You, you hear about uh, people who, uh, uh, there's, there's a guy, Pastor Chuck tells this story. He'll probably tell it better, but um, a guy by the name of Mike McIntosh, who is a, He's a Calvary Chapel pastor down in San Diego. I've actually met him. Super nice guy. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, um, when he got saved, he had gone on a bad trip of LSD that had been laced with strychnine. And it had damaged his brain beyond repair. Doctors said, no, this this is him. He's basically going to be a babbling vegetable for the rest of his life. He would wander around... um, screaming because he thought somebody had shot him in the head and the back of his head was missing. And then he was introduced to Jesus. He now pastors a ginormous church in San Diego, California. I say now, he's been the pastor of that church for like 40 years, but still, that's what God can do. And then, just in case that's not enough, we've been given a seat at the table of the one true God. And one day, we will sit with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's going to be a beautiful day. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, 
The prophet writes, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. God is in the business of restoring us. All that our sin and our mistakes and that the enemy has tried to take away from us, God will restore all of it to us. I heard another, uh, another story. Um, you've heard me talk about John Mark Comer, and I'm reading a book by him called Loveology. Uh, it's really good so far. But he told a, a story of a man um, who was in their church who basically was the definition of sexual immorality. Um, to the point that, you know, he, he would have sex with anybody. Um, he, he hired prostitutes, all, all this stuff. And he got saved and he was coming to the church now. And one day, during service, across the, the room from him during the service was a woman who was a prostitute that he had at one time hired. And he was severely uh, ashamed and convicted. And the Lord put it on his heart to go apologize to her. And he did. And they forgave one another. And, and just this beautiful moment of restoration. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. I think when we think about this, at least if you're anything like me, there's not a whole lot that we can say to it. You know, I, I, as a sinful human being, I deserve nothing less than the eternal judgment and condemnation of hell. That's what I deserve. And if Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection was just enough to keep me from eternal condemnation, that would be enough. Way more than I could ever, ever deserve. But he goes, no, that's, that's, that's not enough. Not only am I going to save you from hell, I'm going to promise you eternity. And at that point, right, we could be like the prodigal son. Eternity? I get to be in heaven. I'm not burning in hell. Now I get to go to heaven. Well, great. I'll, I'll, I'll feed the pigs as long as I can be there. You remember the pro He's like, I'll, I'll, I just want to be in my father's house. It's better than this. And God goes, nah. That's not good enough. Yes, I've saved you from hell. Yes, you can spend eternity with me. But not, not as a servant. Not even just as a resident. But I think I'll adopt you. I will make you my son or daughter. That's pretty sweet. Now as a son and a daughter and or a daughter of God. That's a pretty great spot to be in. You know what God says? That's not good enough. I'm going to put you on par with my son Jesus. What now? I'm going to make you co-heir with the creator of the universe. And what does Jesus get? Everything. And we are co-heirs with Christ. 
That is one of the most mind-boggling things I've ever learned from the Word of God. Because he could have adopted us and made us you know, kind of second-class kids. But no. I'm going to put you on par with Jesus. So we're not going to hell. We are going to heaven. And we're not just going to go. We're going to go as his children. And we're not just going to go as his children, but we're going to go on par with the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's enough, right? More than enough. No, it's not. Not in the grace and compassion of our God. Because then he goes, you know what else? I think I'm going to give you a crown. I think I'm going to make you a king and priest in my kingdom. Huh? And when I set up my eternal kingdom, why don't you just, you'll just come back with me? And you can rule and reign at my side. Is that enough? The very first one, I'm not going to hell, is more than enough. And that doesn't even really get into all that we get here. That we are indwelt by the living God. Saved. Loved. Given a purpose. Given a family. Given gifts. Given breath. Now I've described all of that to you. And if you take a little bit of time, I encourage you to do so, you can find all of what I just said in Scripture. And then there's one verse that makes me think that all that he has told us still isn't enough. Because the Bible says that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered in to the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So now you think about all that we know. And you think about all that we can imagine. And it's not even close to what's actually coming. It's good to be a child of the king. So so good. So what is our response? Thanks, God. I don't think, I don't think there's words. I, I don't think all the worship that we can offer, whether it's singing songs or falling on our knees or, or serving the people around us, I, I don't think devotion, surrender, I, I don't think we, we can't do enough to say thank you. We just can't. And he knows that. And he doesn't care. I mean, don't get me wrong. He, he wants us to say thank you. <laughs> but we can't do enough. And we don't have to try. We, we just have to know that we are that loved. I'm kind of thinking, the, moment, the way I feel at this moment, 
I'm thinking that's, that's the kind of feeling Mephibosheth had. One moment, an outcast. Then somebody shows up at his door and he's thinking, oh man, I'm going to die. He's going to kill me. He's going to make sure the house of my grandfather is gone forever. And in the next moment, he is wealthy and cared for and brought in and loved. That's a picture of salvation. Verse 9. The king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, and your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. See, he said it. You're going to do this, so he'll have all of this, but he's not going to need it, because I'm going to take care of him. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, he said to the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Now Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So Ziba is put in charge of everything. Um, and Ziba says, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Now, it kind of seems like at this moment, Ziba's a pretty good guy, right? Right? David calls him in, says, you got it. Oh, yeah, there's this Mephibosheth guy, goes, gets him and brings him in. David says, I want you to work the land. Ziba says, you got it. I'll work the land. I'll take care of it. Until later on, when David flees from Absalom, Ziba stabs him in the back. Don't worry, because I know you're worried. But don't worry. Um, David kills him eventually. <laughs> I'm just saying, if the king's that nice to you and you stab him in the back, you kind of get what's coming to you. I don't, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that fellow. But we'll, we'll get to that later on. Chapter 10. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to, to, uh, or to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? And therefore Hanun, big mistake, dude, took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Don't laugh. That's not nice. Cynthia? We're... Wow, even Cynthia's laughing. Wow, okay, I didn't mature that quickly. What's going on? <laughs> when they told David, he went to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. 
Oh yeah, it's not funny to laugh at people when they're ashamed now, is it? And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So King Nahash of Ammon kicks off. David wants to show his son Hanun kindness because at some point in time, Hanun's father had shown David kindness. Now, I searched and I could not find a place where Nahash had shown David kindness. The only other place where Nahash of Ammon is mentioned is back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Nahash comes up to a town called up to the town of Jabesh Gilead right after Saul had become king. And, and if you recall this account when we were back there, he said, uh, you know, you'll all be my servants. And they said, well, well, you know, what's the condition? And he said, well, I won't kill y'all, but I'm going to pluck out all your right eyes. And they said, will you give us some time to see if someone will come and, and rescue us? And I guess Nahash was a pretty nice guy. I mean, he really, he wanted to rip the people's eyes out, but um, he said, sure, I'll give you some time. Saul finds out. He comes down. The people of Jabesh Gilead tell Nahash, yeah, we'll come out tomorrow. You can pluck out our eyes. But tomorrow Saul showed up and he took care of business. That's the only other time we see Nahash mentioned. So I don't know when he was kind to David, but at some point in time he was, and David remembered. Now, why was this so shameful? There's a couple of reasons. One, in their culture... The only people that shaved were slaves. And this was actually done as a um, really kind of an anti-theft device or an anti-running away device, right? Because most of the people back then, they had beards, right? I mean, I, I have a beard. Grayson has a beard, but we don't have beards, we, this is just because we don't want to shave, right? They, they had nice, long, big, fluffy Middle Eastern beards. That didn't grow overnight. So if you were in a town and you had a five o'clock shadow, people would go, uh-uh, you don't belong here. Where did you run from? You would have to disappear for a really long time and grow a really long beard. So that was the reason they made them shave. So shaving off half their beards meant that he was treating them like, like slaves. Second, I don't care what culture you're in. If someone cuts off your robe at the buttocks, it's going to be humiliating. I mean, it's the equivalent. I mean, put yourself in... You know, junior high school. Did you ever see someone get pantsed in junior high school or something? I mean, that's what it was. And, and just, just shameful. Now, we haven't read the rest of the chapter yet, but if you were betting folk, would you bet Hanun made a mistake? When the people, uh, so when they told David, he told them to wait at Jericho until their beards were grown. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maaka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Job and all the army of the mighty men. 
And the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rahab, and Ishtab, and Maaka were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be strong. For our people, and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So Hanun, thinking he's just untouchable, I'm the king of Ammon. And he's got his his little Weasley advisors who tell him to do this thing. Cost him dearly. Hires the Syrians. They end up in a a two-front battle. Joab says, all right, I'll take the best with me. Abishai, you take the rest. If either of us have trouble, we'll help each other out. And and as soon as it started, really, the Syrians are like, I ain't messing with Joab. And they ran. When the people of Ammon said, well, that was a waste of money because they hired all these mercenaries, they ran. But they ran into a walled city and Joab gave up. Verse 12, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what is good in his sight. I love that verse. Not only does this statement show trust in God and encouragement between the brothers, Joab and Abishai, it says something else to me. Uh, Joab states, all right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go here. You're going to go there. If we need help, we're going to help each other out. Joab states, this is what we're going to do. And then he states, the outcome's up to God. All right, now we're going to fight this battle, but the Lord's going to do what is good in his sight. And I think that's so important for us to understand. We need to be of good courage as the Lord calls and empowers us to do the things that he wants us to do in our lives. And we can be strong for others in God's strength. But the Lord's going to do what is good in his sight. Now, if we're faithful to do what God calls us to do, the outcome is his responsibility. That is so comforting to me. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 and 7, or 5 through 7, sorry. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. See, I spent a lot of time in the last chapter making you feel really good. Now, if you plant or you water, you're not anything. It's about balance, folks. Right? Because if you plant, great. Plant seeds by sharing the gospel. Or maybe somebody else has planted a seed and you meet somebody 
And you water that seed by loving on that person or serving that person or answering a question or sharing the gospel again. But if that person gets saved, you don't go, I was the one who put that seed in there. I was the one that watered it. No, you weren't. It doesn't matter. Because only God can save people. We can tell them. We can talk to them. And we should be faithful to do so. But in the end, only God can save. And if they heard anything we said, it was the Holy Spirit's work anyway. I just, I appreciate that. It takes a lot of pressure off. Verse 15. When the Syrians saw they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer, say that three times fast. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. And they came to Halim. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians. He struck Shobak, the commander of the army who died there. When all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. I really, really like this. So Joab went out to war, and the Syrians fled, and the people of Ammon fled, and Joab went home. I'm kind of thinking that's not what David wanted him to do. Because now the Syrians have a chance to regroup. Right? There, there were, there were uh, well, we could go back and do the math, but 30,000 or so that had been hired by Ammon who fled well, now they come back with 40,000 plus because it's just 40,000 that were killed, not including the charioteers and all of this. And David hears that this is happening and he goes, fine, I'll deal with it. And David is a little more thorough than Joab. And he just mops the floor with them to the point that when they fled, Everybody was afraid. Ammon was afraid. The Syrians were subdued. And everybody that had served the Syrians came to David and were like, great job. Can we be your friend? <laughs> you know, because Hadadezer had conquered probably a, a number of smaller nations around him. And when he was defeated so soundly, the people were like, well, we don't have to serve that guy. Let's, let's serve the guy that, that beat him. And so they went and they made a deal with David. So next time, uh, which will be two weeks from tonight, we're going to look at David and Bathsheba. And I'm just going to tell you right now, even though David has many, many faults, we're going to put a little bit of blame on Bathsheba too. You don't think she knew he could see her rooftop? Just throwing that out there. Just throwing that out there. But we'll get that next week. But what's interesting, not next week, two weeks. But what's very interesting to me is we see right here, as we finish up tonight, David at the peak of his power. The kingdom is established. He has been given great promises by God. He is wealthy. His family is growing. He is keeping the promises that he made. He has peace all around him. He has victory after victory because God gives him these victories over his enemies. 
And it's in that place, the place of, wow, everything's perfect. Everything's just right. Well, I mean, look at, look at all, look at what God has done. Look at how amazing my life is. That a little tart shows up in a bathtub. No offense. I just, David was wrong, but Bathsheba has some blame to hold for herself. 1 Corinthians 10.12 tells us, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because that, that's when Satan comes after us. Right? If you're having a really bad day, but you are you're prayed up, you're in the word, and yeah, maybe you're having a bad day, but you're seeking the Lord, you're, you're trusting him, or you're trying to, because none of us do that perfect, and, and, and you know he's with you, and you know he loves you, and and Satan's going to be like, ah, it's not worth it, I'll wait. But you get comfortable. You're in your big fancy chair. You got all the money you could possibly think of. Everybody, everybody's doing whatever it is you tell them to do because you're King David. And Satan goes, yeah, but wouldn't that be fun? Well, yeah, it would be. <laughs> because we're just that dumb. <laughs> And I actually, I don't, I actually don't think it's stupidity. I think it's apathy. I think David spent so many years fighting, he got to a place where he didn't have to fight, and he got lazy. And we have to be warned of the same thing. So there's a preview of two weeks. Next week, we will, we will do our prayer for the four, to finish up the 40 days of life. Um, until then, let's pray. Lord, we love you. And I am so grateful for how much you love us that we are your children, that we are heirs with Christ, that we have been saved and forgiven and made whole and restored, and that you've given us a future, one that is so outstanding we can't even imagine it. Thank you, Father. And I pray, even though it's our next message, that you would give us wisdom Lord, give us wisdom to not get lazy. Because we have an enemy, and boy, he doesn't like us. But we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Pray you bless the rest of our night and the rest of this week. I pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.